Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. On the topic of intimacy at the beginning stages of healing from infidelity, what are realistic building blocks would you encourage to create safety and intimacy? Um, uh, you know, I had a little time to read this over. <laughs> and if you guys see me look down, I'm taking notes. I'm not like on my phone or something. And, you know, part of this is really, I think, Tammy, important to what we talk about when we talk about intimacy, because people immediately think, oh, that's sex or that's touching each other or intimacy has anything to do with anything romantic. Um, intimacy it can be defined. Really, you know, I think I'm pretty good at this piece. Intimacy can be defined by you're making yourself vulnerable and taking a risk that your partner may not, or whoever you're talking to, they may not receive it well. They may walk away. They may be too busy. If you take a risk and put something out about yourself and that person shows interest and engagement, that's intimacy. Intimacy doesn't have to be touched. So when you talk about realistic building blocks, I think about you're spending half hour together and one of you just sharing about what's going on with you now, what's going on with your day, how you're feeling about the family, whatever. And then the other person do it, you know, just sit down and create intimacy by not talking, you know, we run around and we're so not intimate. You know, we talk about what's come, what's for dinner and is it going to rain? And, you know, especially if you got kids, but making time for that emotional connection where the other person knows you, and accepts you, even if it's, you know, just your frustration and the other side around, you're creating intimacy. And you know what will come out of that? Hand-holding, hugs, um, romantic and other kinds of intimacies. And for a sex addict to have our, our arousal based on connection rather than something intense is really great for us. A lot of us think we can't have in sexual intimacy it has to be a relationship intimacy and then sexual intensity over there. And we can combine them, but we have to learn a whole different way of connecting. Um, that's maybe a little more focused on you than it is on me. But in any case, um, I think the building blocks lie within your vulnerable vulnerability with each other. And I just want to say one more thing about this. You know, I do group therapy at Seeking Integrity a number of days of the week. And guys, if you were there, I will be there tomorrow. And one of the things that we talk about is, you know, we have a community of men, usually eight or nine or six or, you know, and they really are the center of the work, in my opinion. I mean, we teach, we, we educate, we have therapy and all that stuff. But on some level, it's the relationships that these men build in the home of, uh, that really matters. And they're not having sex with each other. What they're doing is somebody went, they went to group together, a therapy together, and something really bothered someone in that therapy. And so they go to the group or someone there and they say, you know, I was really... They take a risk. I was really upset by what happened today, and I'm having a hard time. They made themselves vulnerable. And then another person says, oh, wow, I could see that today. Why don't you tell me what's going on? That is intimacy. So when I make myself vulnerable and I let myself be known, and I have no idea how you're going to respond, I'm only hopeful you respond well, that is me being vulnerable and creating the stage where intimacy can take place. So there, there's my rant, my Christmas rant. Here you go. Okay, so the next question is, is addiction recovery handled differently when there is also a history of childhood trauma, every form of abuse for years, mental disorders, OCD, anxiety, and more, and somatic 
symptoms? Well, ask me a hard question, why don't you, Tammy? Um, so I think there's a number of questions, right? Because it talks about different issues that can create or present as addictions. So, you know, I can speak to a couple and I don't know that I can speak to all of them. Um, I do think that addiction recovery is handled differently when someone has a profound uh, traumatic history because we have to, to take into account as therapists how quickly we explore things and do you have a, a boundary around that addiction behavior? So if difficult things come up in the therapy, will you end up getting overwhelmed and acting out? We have to keep our eye on you as an addict trauma survivor in a little different way than we just do. Not that you aren't also trauma survivors, trust me, but those people are highly sensitive. We have to go slow. And uh, what else? Um, 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 abuse mental for years. Mental disorders, like, yeah, abuse for years and then mental disorders, right. OCD, anxiety, yeah. Well, I, you know, and I, I have to say this, there are some people, and this is absolutely true, people say to me, when, when would someone have to go to residential treatment? Here's a good example, because you brought it up. And it's when what they're working on in the world, um, like uh, issues in therapy and trauma and stress in life, leads them back to their addiction. And when they try to you know, conquer that addiction, they're, they're unable to, and they can't, uh, they can't balance their life. So in any case, Tammy, mental disorders. Um, it depends on the mental disorder. Um, if you have a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia, like schizophrenia or a really profound thought disorder, like extreme paranoia, you know, or you are, um, you're disabled in a way that you, you know, you can't read or you can't take in concepts or, you know, or if you're violent or something like that. I mean, there are some people who have mental disorders that are going to completely prevent them from being able to heal. And then there are the rest of us like OCD and anxiety and depression, which can be handled with therapy and sometimes a medication. And so I don't think that work is a whole lot harder. It's more about teaching some of their symptoms, teaching them things they can do to avoid, you know, like you would if they had diabetes. Um, Tammy, you want to talk about somatic symptoms, which is, you know, the body when the, uh, or maybe you don't. Would you like oh, to comment well, on well, this? I see the somatic symptoms often with betrayed partners. So, you know, interesting when there's somatic experience with it. We get a lot of calls and, you know, when people are looking to come to the treatment program, we ask questions about, you know, have they been diagnosed with a mental disorder? You know, and as Dr. Rob said, some of them like OCD or, you know, some of them can be diagnosed and treated properly, not just going to your GP or just getting, you know, handed out of pills, but under some with someone who understands what addiction is and what part goes in the addiction bucket and what part goes in the mental health issue um, bucket, you know, then really good results can often, you know, happen. Uh, I agree that everyone has issues. I, you know, we talk all the time too about what are the underlying issues and some of them are profoundly traumatic. And I have said to people, thank goodness you have an addiction that probably saved your life. That probably was your safe place to go to. Now that's turned on you. So what do we do to help you? But you here you are. So let's, let's help you you know, move forward in a different way. So, so it really is if the, if the mental health issue is at, you know, is a higher priority, you know, then getting help with that first and then doing the addiction work. So, so it really is so individualized again, why, you know, I really appreciate our treatment team because they're looking at all aspects of that, you know, to, you know, if, if someone's with us, you know, then we want to look at that. Some have a you know, an outside consultation to address those things. But I mean, that's profound. And someone trying to go see a 50 minute a week specialist, you know, even a really great 
qualified professional, that will unlikely be successful, particularly as Dr. Rob, you know, he kind of glossed over it, but, you know, there's often co-occurring addictions. So if they're doing this one, that, you know, I mean, they could be doing three different things. And if somebody's just going, oh, well, it's the chemicals. So I'm going to go get chemical treatment. This happens all the time. And then everything's going to be fine. And it isn't because there's all these other things that the person has learned to go comfort with, you know, whatever is the most available in the moment, you know, so, um, so complex, that would be one I would have someone really qualified, you know, address, screen, assess, and help guide mm -hmm. the treatment process. Yeah, I've had a lot of people say, oh, well, your mental health symptoms will all get better when you are sober. And, you know, I had to figure it. No, I got sober and then figured out I was depressed. And I had other things going on. It's harder to see when you're acting out to escape and make yourself feel better. But that's actually what I wanted to say earlier is that there's a cycle that does drive certain people into treatment, which is they start to work on the trauma and then they get overwhelmed. And they start acting out and then they work on the acting out and they get overwhelmed with trauma. And so they really can't they can't do it, like Tammy said, going to, it's very hard to go to work on a very deep level with abuse, like this person's talking about, an hour a week and two hours in a group and going to meetings three days a week. I mean, that's for folks who are moderately narcissistic. But if you have deep challenges with trauma, you know, it, this is the stuff of going to intensives and, and spending a week or two, you know, working on yourself, where you take yourself out of the stresses of life and you just focus on you uh retreats treatment of various sorts i mean it is uh, if you want to grow i think you need to go to a safe place and you know spend a week or two there and tell and me those places by the way well i, I do but uh, uh, if somebody really has all of this you know a workshop a retreat is not going to address any of those issues you know so so getting I, mean, I always want people to get the right form of help. You know, uh, are we an expert program? Yes. Are we for everybody? No. You know, there's a there's a bunch of questions that get asked to find out if if we're the right fit for for the client too. But but that's a lot for somebody to deal with in an outpatient workshop kind of a way. So that would be my concern. But everybody gets to pick. So okay, next question. We've got bunches. Hi, Dr. Robin, Tammy. I have relapsed over the weekend after being sober for 117 days for the first time since joining SLAA 16 months ago. It started with masturbation. Now I'm watching porn, booking sex uh, female um, and trans female sex workers. Within two days, I seem to have managed to go deeply into my addiction. Any suggestion would be much appreciated. Kindest regards. Mm, I am. Well, I just think you're oh, doing sorry. great. I think you are doing great. You relapsed over the weekend, and today is what, Tammy, Wednesday? Monday. And you it's were, only Monday. Okay, you relapsed over you know, um, You relapsed over the weekend. It's like one or two days later, and here you are saying, you know, I fell on my face. I want to get up. I'm not sure what happened. Um, I see how it escalates very quickly. And you're coming a place like this and saying, how can I get help? And I don't know if you can take in, or maybe you don't, may not fully understand how much is there in what you just said. So many men I work with, they just stop talking at meetings. They don't let anybody know they're acting out. They want to keep acting out. They want to look good and never say that they lost their time. Um, you know, they want to say they only did some of, I mean, what you just did is amazing. And 
if you could take that in, you'll get another 117 days. Because my feeling is you're looking at yourself as I would be, oh, I screwed this up and I had so much time and you know, I, I'm never going to get better. And maybe these people can help me. And, and what I want to say to you is I think you're doing great. You went months and months without acting out. You had a slip or relapse. You came right back. You're aware of what it means. You want to get to work on it. I can't think of a healthier recovering person because no one's going to do it perfectly. Um, I hope you didn't hurt yourself. I hope you didn't hurt someone else. Um, but if you're just, if the, the hardest part is going to be letting yourself down. And I just really want to say that what I see here is a lot of healing. Bet so you were going to say the same thing, Tim. Well, I want I, I concur that yeah, yes, I'm glad you're here and that there's more support. So so lean in. We've got the drop-in groups um, uh, on specifically on sexandrelationshiphealing.com. That one. And then I put in the chat because the sex addiction 101 level one starts again in January. Great foundational pieces. That may be, you know, the next puzzle piece that you need to, you know, to have more time. So, so lean into the resources. Thrilled you're here, but there's lots more. So, bunches of free things on on this site, and then the work groups are on um, on the other one. So, I, I did want to tell me. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, say something about the um, female sex workers and trans female sex workers. Uh -huh. It was in the last question, yeah. which is those are different issues than addiction. When someone's into something, you know, whether into trans folks, whether into um, if they're into some fetish or some that's that's something that is part of you. And it may or may not something you could stop, but I wouldn't call it addiction. You may act it out in ways that are addictive, like hiding and keeping secrets and paying for it and, you know, all that stuff and, and hating yourself. But the fact that you have this attraction is not an illness. How you play it out may be the problem. So I encourage you to separate what turns you on from how you play it out in the world. Otherwise, you will not have peace if that helps you. And probably will struggle with perpetual relapse, too. Yes, so so that's finding right. the peace is what we, you know, I, living most hours of most days in a form of serenity. Not that I'm all Zen, but but, you know, like I don't. Struggle you are not saying tonight, Tammy, I, am not. I can tell you. No, but it's one of those, I don't struggle <laughs> with who I am. You know, it, it, like I accepted this, who, I'm continuing to work on it. That being congruent, you know, we, we're seeking integrity. I, I want to have integrity with my actions, you know, how I treat people. So, um, so that you can learn to do and be, you know, so, okay. Ready for the next one? My sure. husband is addicted to alcohol, food, gambling, video games, and now I have found out sex. How, po how possible is recovery from so many addictions? Well, I think the first, I, I have a different, a comment for a different question, which is where do we start? And the recommendation I would always give is with the alcohol, because I will never be able to reach out to someone, stop sliding into my behavior, sort of end up doing all this other stuff unless I'm sober on drugs and alcohol. So, you know, even if this person is struggling with other addictions, they have to at least start with um, what keeps them uh, unable to make good decisions. I will say this is another example why people go to residential treatment, which is if you are struggling with multiple addictions, um, it's extremely hard to stop all of it. 
And it's useful to be in a safe environment where you're being supported. And this is the other, it's so funny because this is the other reason that people come to residential other than their upset spouses. Um, I think recovery is absolutely possible. I think, um, I, I wonder what you're doing toward recovery um, or your husband is doing toward recovery. I, I hear you found out about things and I hear, I see that you're here. But I'm just not sure if he is interested in this recovery. I, I, um, I tell me, you know, I do consultations for couples on a regular basis. And it inevitably happens that um, the, the, the male partner who's been cheating, it's often the male, says, I'm doing so much. I'm going to some meetings. And I'm going to some groups. And I read your book. And here I am having this consultation with you. And I started this as new therapist. And it sounds really good until I say to their spouse, to their partner, who got you who got him the book who found out about those meetings that he was going to who set up this call who and then i start to hear that they haven't done anything what they've done is follow what their spouse told them to do and uh and then they turn around as most addicts do and say look how well i'm doing with the things you told me to do but i'm actually not doing any more or any less so um so it's recovery is very possible um you have to start with the substance. And uh, yeah, Tammy, I've said it. What do you want to say? So I look at this as lots of forms of addictive behavior. Core issues are, you know, have to be addressed. So stop the drinking for sure. But, you know, until and unless the core issues, the reasons why, you know, in the previous question, we talked about the maladaptive coping mechanisms. There could be something so hurtful and wounding you know when he was young that he found all these great ways to escape from having to feel and to be connected you know and they just snowball and and you know I can't drink at work but I can you know I can I can use food I can use gambling because I can do that on my whatever you know so it's it's uh, um it's kind of the opportune I kind of call it the garbage can of addictions. It's like, I'm going to do all of them and I'm going to do whatever I can do right in the moment, you know, so I can't do that one. So I'm going to do this one. But at the end of the day, it's still about taking me away from the pain, uh, numbing me out, but it's also keeping me from being truly connected in a meaningful way to people that I care about and highly problematic. I mean, you know, all of those have risks of varying degrees um uh you know health but you know i mean life you know people you know, when, when clients call our program if they're drinking alcohol that's probably the most scary well one of the more scary ones to me meth is super scary too but you know because alcohol abuse you know people need detox they can't just sleep it off for a couple of days it's it's really scary you know so i hope he gets the help he needs so okay ready for the next one Ever since my wife caught me cheating, acting out sex addiction, the power dynamic has shifted in our couple. I am the one that cheated, and I feel like I must atone for my misbehavior. I guess equilibrium will return um, with enough time. Any suggestions to help in the meanwhile? Well, what I would say to this person is I think you suffer from a lack of humility. Yeah, I was thinking the same you thing. You suffer from a lack of humility because what you're fighting for is, I want to get my control back. I want to be the one in charge. I want to, and that's not going to head you toward healing anything with your spouse. Um, you have dramatically um, abused her and hurt her heart. 
And this is not the time for you to be worried. What you're worried about is so minor compared to the bigger problems you have. You know, your family is falling apart. You've destroyed your partner's self-esteem. If you have kids, I'm sure they've been affected. And you're concerned about how you're being treated or how you have to act in a way you don't like. I would say your priorities are probably off, not to be disrespectful. Um, and yes, you do have to atone for your behavior. That I'm glad you guessed that. That's absolutely right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't just feel like I had to. I would think about how I could. And I would ask my spouse, how could I ever atone for this and see what they say? Um, I did, again, right out of the doghouse because, no offense, sir, but you are the the classic example of a man who doesn't have any clue what his, what his female spouse is going through when he's profoundly cheated. Um, and I don't think that's on you as a bad thing. I don't think you're a bad person. I just think it takes learning and understanding rather than, I think I know what they're going through, or, you know, it's been a couple of months, they should be over it. It really helps to understand what someone has been through. You have to understand what they've been through in order to, to help them and help each other. So I don't, and just to say this, I don't think whatever you call equilibrium. So let me tell you what equilibrium was before your wife caught you cheating. What it was, was you had all the power because you knew everything. You knew then where you were, when you were there, when you weren't there, she was in the dark. Uh, you could make up any lie or any excuse, and she really, tr oh, she trusted you, and you abused that trust by doing whatever the heck you wanted, and then she was, okay, that equilibrium, first of all, that's not equilibrium, can I say that? Equilibrium. equilibrium, that is you being in control, you having the power, and feeling like your spouse doesn't really matter, and they don't deserve to, so I hope that you never return to that. What I hope you return to over time is some sense of balance, you know, uh, where you are both informed, you're both supporting each <laughs> other, and you've worked through some of this pain. And I want you to understand that I understand that you want to seek peace and you want to seek normalcy in your home and you want some to be able to go back to, to being good together, you know, which also is a wonderful thing. But it takes a lot of time and it doesn't just take your. And so he said, any suggestions to help in the meanwhile? What are you doing, as Tammy often says? Um, I think that if you say to your spouse, you know, I've started this therapy, I'm going to this support group, I'm reading this book, I went online and joined their, you know, introductory session to sex, whatever it is, and you can join us or not. But the point is, what are you doing to show your spouse that, uh, that you are able to live in atonement? You know, the, I am taking my time to do these things at, at first to make you happy and then hopefully over time because I realize I need to. Um, but if you want to restore a sense of peace in your home, demonstrate to your spouse how willing you are to do whatever it takes to make it better. Um, yeah, Tammy? I, I was thinking the same thing, that there, there wasn't equilibrium. Um, there's a different power dynamic. Um, so yeah, now it's, it's shifted. But um, yeah, so Dr. Stan Tatkin did a great podcast with Dr. Rob on sex, love and addiction called We Do. And it's about a partnership. And it isn't, you know, it isn't this. It's the two of you against the world being better together in a healthy relationship. That's how it is. In an unhealthy relationship, it isn't. And, you know, you're, you're better off, you know, not in a relationship. So, so creating an equilibrium, I won't even say restoring, creating an equilibrium where the relationship is primary, not what I want and not, not me being in control. Um, but I also wanted to comment on, I guess with enough time, no, 
Time has nothing to do with it. Partners, unfortunately, can report three years later that he's still the same jerk that he was. And so it isn't about time. It is exactly what Dr. Rob said. It's about action. Continue to act into recovery and change will help over time create a place where you can have peace and equilibrium within the relationship. So I'm really hopeful. I wanted to tell you that. So, so there's always hope when people are willing to step into that space. So, okay. And I just, yeah. one more yeah. thing, mm-hmm. you know, you know, I like to play with words. I mean, it's one of the mm-hmm. reasons that we called our place integrity. Um, but the word equilibrium has something to do with being equal and nothing in you described how things were before are equal. And right now they're probably not equal because you're, as we say in the doghouse, but there will be a time when you will share equality. It's not going to look anything like that was before. So anyway, thanks, Tammy. I like that word equilibrium. Yes. They just never had it. <laughs> no, they're on the teeter totter and it's going, it's gone up and down. So, okay. How often should my, oh, shoulds. How often should my SA husband and I do check-ins? I've, I hear different frequency suggestions. Do you have a suggested format? Um, so, why don't, Tammy, would you mind, why don't you explain what a check-in is so that they can understand just that other people may not know? Yeah, so, there, if you're in a relationship, it can be very helpful for the relationship to do a check-in, meaning I'm going to, and I'll look up the, uh, if Anos, I'll, I'll look up the link and put it in the chat, but you, you use that. Yeah, it, it is. It's a, it's a, I format. forget about that. Yeah. It's a format for, for checking in. I think it really depends on your relationship. If you want to do it every day, I think that's great. It should be, I think at a set time, I think it should be both of you checking in. Uh, you know, it isn't just, a, uh, it isn't like I'm reporting to the teacher. It's about how do we you know, here's where I'm feeling emotionally. Here's all of those things. You know, this is called communication. And so having a check-in, you know, can be really helpful. I also really like the structure of having several times a week of 20 minutes of like, we're going to talk about our relationship and say where we're at. And it's going to be kind of contained so so that we have the ability to set ourselves up for success to have that. I can do my grounding. I can call my sponsor. I can do what I need to do so that I can help the relationship move forward. So, um, but I think it's, yeah, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would do it more than once a day, but you know, I, that ultimately is up to the two of you too. So what are your thoughts? Um, well, I think I agree that it, it's, um, I think you have to start with something consistent because it has to be, you're not used to connecting on a regular basis or, so what I'm going to go back to say, it's individual to where your life is. But if someone has just acted out and you have questions all day long about that, it's going to be very hard to, for either of you to focus on your day when you want to know this and you want to know that and you want to know this understandably. So when acting out has been recent, it's a really good idea to check in all the time. Like in, in other words, once every evening for 20 minutes, half an hour. The reason for that when things are intense is you don't want to spend your whole day answering questions at looking for cell phone records. I mean, you just want to talk about it at the right time so you can have your day. Um, so it, they're more frequent and they might be every night in the beginning, you know, I don't trust you and I want to talk about my feelings and, and that way you're less, uh, less likely to rage during the day, either one. So there's that. And then, you know, I agree that it, it is communication, it's connection, it's building intimacy. And so if you can take 
half an hour twice a week at a certain point. But I know people who all kinds of, well, do, I'll give you the format in a second. But I know couples who do all kinds of ways of connecting. I know couples that pray together. I know couples that read together in bed. I know couples that have all kinds of ways of having meaningful check-ins and intimacy building without having to talk about the issues. I don't think it should be that, well, we have a Wednesday check-in and I'm fine and you're fine. Let's, we got to sit down. You know, maybe it'll be the night to go for ice cream or something. But um, as far as a format, the most important thing is, you know, first of all, time it. You know, you got half an hour, set your phone, your phone or whatever at 15 minutes so that each of you have a fair share. And the best way to do this takes a little bit of work. The best way to do this is for someone to talk for 10 or 12 minutes and their partner to say, I think this is the, these are the things I heard you say, you know, to repeat it back to them. That's really the best way to do it because that tells you that the person really heard you. Or if there's something they didn't understand, you can correct them. Um, but another way to more simply do it is just have each person take 15 minutes and listen and then take, you know, a few minutes at the end for questions. Um, to spouses who feel overwhelmed by how many questions you have all day long and you just feel you need to know something, write it down. You know, uh, put a notes or a reminder section in your phone and write down, I want to know if she did this. I want to know if he did that. I want to know how many times or how much money. And when you sit down and have a conversation, that's when you could talk about it. Not when you're taking the kids to school and you've got to handle, you know, your parents for the holidays. That's not the time to be demanding of your spouse that you want to see their cell phone. Um, anyway, Tammy. Well, I, yeah, I, I think so too. I just want to, I, I also think for some of the partners, because I need to know all the gory details, you know, you kind of talk, about, I want to know this, I want to know that, you know, like journaling about it, talking to other betrayed partners, talking to your qualified professional, what is it you're looking for? Because there's probably something more than I just want to know these gory details. I'm looking for safety. I'm looking for you know, I, I'm thinking, oh, he likes this body type better than mine or whatever. There's something underlying it. And that's probably more of what you're looking to have answered than the gory details that you get stuck in your head. I hear this all the time where partners have asked those questions. The betray, betrayer goes, I have to tell her she wanted to know. And now the poor partner is extra traumatized. It wasn't helpful as they thought it would be. It's, it adds to the hurt. So, so I'm, I want you guys to have the best shot at healing. So be careful. Like you think I deserve to know this. You deserve to know the things that are going to help you and you don't deserve to be more traumatized. That's my, my wish for you. So, okay. And I'll say one more thing. Every time you spouses say, this is the last question. That's the, and, and those of you who have acted out male or female, that will never be the case. So if anyone thinks, well, if I just answer this question, then it'll get quiet tonight or we'll be at peace or we'll be able to watch the Great British Baking Show or whatever it is. The reality is, is that there'll never just be one more question. And it isn't because our spouses are intrusive and, and demanding. And I, I really believe that they are looking for a reason to stay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think spouses do all of that looking and searching and questioning, not because they're looking for a reason to leave, because they already have a reason to leave. They're looking to see if there's a, so much going on that they wouldn't be able to stay. And that's why I always validate the spouses in the first couple of months, look at whatever you need to look at. And don't let ever, anyone ever say to you, that's not okay. I'm not saying to hurt your partner by sneaking around, you know. But if you want to see their uh, Facebook page, you can get the, you know, the, the password. If you want to see that, you know, whatever it is, you, you ask for it and you should be able to look at it. There's nothing to hide. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.